0: Well, this is part four of the John series, wherein we are walking through the Gospel of John, verse by verse by verse, and we are trying to tackle it from all different angles, whether that be evangelistic, apologetic, literary, everything. We are trying to make this a very in-depth survey of the Gospel of John, both so that we can edify our own spiritual lives, but also to go out and affect the world for the glory of God of Jesus Christ. And we are currently in the very beginning of the Gospel of John. Like I said, this is only part four in the series, so we are still in the prologue of John. And in this lesson we are actually going to finish up the prologue of John, which is the first eighteen verses of the first chapter. And after this lesson we're actually going to move into the narrative of the Gospel of John. And so that being said, these end up being long videos, so I'm not going to waste too much of our time. I'm going to pray for us so that we can hop right into scripture. Dear Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. Thank you for allowing us to have your word so that we can go into it and that we can learn it and we can meditate on it and we can grow closer to you through it. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We thank you so much for all that you're doing and we thank you so much for all that you will do. And we pray that through this study, We will be affected in such a way that we fall head over heels for you. In such a way that we will not only manifest your love in our daily lives, but that we will go out and share that love with the world. A love that is true, a love that stands for the truth, and a love that stands for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, thus far in the Gospel of John, we have read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of blood, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. And that's where we left off last week. This week, we read this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Thus far in our past lessons, thus far in the gospel of John, the author, John, has introduced us to the word. He has introduced us to the witness who will make the word known. And he has introduced us to the world into which the word was coming to. In this lesson, right here and right now, John is done introducing us. Now it is time for the word to introduce himself. And so we read in the first verse, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, once again, John takes us back to verse 1, where we were talking about the eternal, uncreated, self-existent word of God, who both was with God and was God. He was distinct from God, yet he was the same as God. And right here, we read that the word God himself became flesh. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say that the word became a man, or that the word appeared before men, or that the word made himself known to man. No, he says that the word became flesh. He goes out of his way to use a word that oftentimes will make Christians uncomfortable. Because oftentimes, as Christians, we form this sort of dualism in our minds where flesh equals bad And spirit equals good. We think that material things are evil and immaterial things are automatically good just by nature. And John wants us to know that's not the truth. Material things can be good because God created material things. Before sin entered the world, there were material things and God called his creation good. So it's not that material things are bad, it's our sin that corrupts the material things and makes them bad. And so if John simply said that the Word became a man, you could have people come along, and people have done this, and they try to say, oh, Jesus wasn't actually a physical man, he simply appeared like a man. He was spirit who appeared as a man. He just took the form of a man. But John doesn't say that. He says the word became flesh. God, who is spirit, took flesh upon himself. He stepped into the material realm, into the material existence. This dualism is a common mistake that Christians make, and they've been making it since the beginning of Christianity. And at the time of John's writing, there was a specific group of people known as the Docetists who were touting this same heretical view, saying that everything material is evil, everything immaterial is good, everything that's flesh is bad, everything that's spirit is good. And John, the author, was vastly opposed to these people because they had a vital and terrible misunderstanding of what God has done, because they started having this view where basically anything that God does in relation to the material realm, it's a different God, right? Sometimes people have this dualistic view of God that there's two gods, and the one God is like this God of the material realm, and therefore he's evil, and the God of the immaterial realm is the God of spirit, and therefore he's good. And that's not the view of Christianity, The view of Christianity is that there is one God, and he's the God of both the material and immaterial realms, of both flesh and spirit. And all things are meant to be good. The things that corrupt them is sin. We need to remember that flesh itself was created by God. It is our sin that corrupts the flesh and oftentimes uses it for sinful purposes. This is why, in the Bible, the term flesh can often be used as synonymous with the term worldliness. It's not because flesh in and of itself suggests that it is sinful and worldly. It's because, oftentimes, it is the worldly nature within us that causes us to abuse the flesh, right? So whenever somebody is acting in the flesh, they're acting in a worldly manner, right? And in that sense, the flesh is evil, right? Because it's causing us to sin. But the flesh in and of itself is not evil because it was created by God. And it's our sinful natures that corrupts the flesh. And so John wants us to recognize that when the word becomes flesh, he is going to be the personification of everything that is good. And he is going to be this man who is like men were meant to be. Before the fall of man, before Adam sinned, this man is going to be like that. He is going to be the image of perfect obedience. Because he is not going to sin. God's coming in the flesh. And he is going to be non-sinful. The eternal word himself took upon flesh. This verse should blow your mind. And I think sometimes we might take it for granted. Because we take it for granted that God came in the flesh. Because we've heard it our entire lives. Or even if you haven't heard it your entire life. You're generally familiar with the doctrines of Christianity. And so we don't think how mind-blowing this is. But this is asserting that the uncreated, eternal, self-existent God, the one who created everything, stepped into the very creation that he created. The unseen God made himself seen. The infinite stepped into finitude. The unknowable God introduced himself to man. Eternity stepped into time. The invisible became visible. The creator stepped into his creation. This should blow your mind. Yet this is the assertion of Christianity. Jesus, God, he stepped into humanity. He introduced himself to us. He made him known. He made himself known to us. Jesus did not give up his godhood, as some people suggest. Some people would say that whenever Jesus came down to earth, he gave up his godhood, but that is not the assertion of Christianity. As we will see through the Gospel of John again and again, Jesus demonstrates that even on earth, he was God. So Jesus did not give up his godhood. He simply took on manhood. He donned our humanity in coming down to earth. And right here, in this moment, He is introducing himself to us. That's actually where we get the word incarnation. Whenever you hear about the incarnation of Christ, it is incarnate, in flesh, right? The word became flesh. He was incarnated. So in case you're wondering where that comes from, that's what it is. Jesus, God, is taking upon flesh and he's coming down to us. And it says that he dwelt among us. More literally, this term could actually be translated and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, or the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It comes from the Greek word skanao, right? Which literally means to pitch one's tent, to set up a tabernacle, to dwell just like God dwelt with the Israelites in the wilderness. Just as the presence of God dwelt within the tabernacle in the midst of the camp of Israel during their years of wandering and prior to the construction of the temple, so too the word came down and pitched his tent among the sons of men. The phrase could also bring to mind the tent of meeting that Moses pitched outside the camp where he would go and meet with God prior to the tabernacle being constructed. Either way, the tabernacle, by comparison, was but a foretaste of this miraculous event. So back in the Old Testament, during the Exodus, whenever the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, there was this thing called the tabernacle. It was a tent of meeting where God would come and his presence dwelt in the center of the camp. And he dwelt amongst his people. And that is the assertion of what's happening here with Jesus. Except it's something even greater than that. Because God is no longer dwelling in a tent made by human hands. He is dwelling on earth as a man himself. This is the most intimate God has ever sought to relate to man. God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in the most personal way imaginable. He has become one of them. That's the assertion of Christianity. It goes beyond the tabernacle. It goes beyond the tent of meeting. It goes beyond even the temple itself. God is coming in the flesh. He's not dwelling in a tent. He's not dwelling in a building. He's not dwelling in a house built by human hands. He is dwelling as a man in a world surrounded by men. That's what God's doing. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The author says that we have seen his glory. And when he says we, he's most likely speaking about the twelve disciples and those other people, the other Christians who witnessed Jesus during the days of his ministry. But by means of this gospel right here, he seeks to share that glory with us, the readers. So you see, John is saying, whenever Jesus was in the flesh, whenever he was here, we beheld his glory. We saw it with our own two eyes. He's claiming to be an eyewitness to this miraculous event wherein God became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, I saw it with my eyes. And this whole gospel is meant to serve as testimony upon testimony so that we too, as the readers, can see what he saw. And we can even see more than what he saw because he's going to provide us with a helicopter view wherein we are able to see things that he only got to perceive in hindsight. So he beheld the glory and now he wants us to behold the glory as well. Jesus' glory is demonstrated through the signs he performs ultimately culminating in his death and resurrection. So throughout the whole gospel, we're going to see that Jesus is demonstrating his glory the miraculous signs that demonstrate that he is God and thus people are going to glorify him and ultimately that glory is most highly known whenever he marches down the road and he is crucified and he dies for the sins of the world only to resurrect three days later and thus the glory of God will be made known through the God who became flesh. Some would take this to be an even more specific reference to the part of John, Um, on the part of John, this would, some people would take this phrase, we beheld his glory, to be a reference to the act of the transfiguration as it's recounted in the synoptic gospels right? We don't actually have this event recounted in the Gospel of John, but basically uh, the transfiguration is this moment wherein Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and he started talking with Elijah and Moses. Very crazy moment, and when you're reading through the Gospels, it kind of just blows your mind. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, Very crazy incident, uh, and the interesting thing about that, if this is what that's referencing, being that it's saying that we beheld his glory, as in they saw him shining bright as the sun, talking with Moses and Elijah, it could be that's what he's referencing to. The interesting thing about this, and we actually addressed this in the very first video, in the very first lesson, uh, if that is what John is referencing here, this guarantees to us that the author is John. Uh, because there were only three people present other than Jesus at the transfiguration. There was Peter, there was James, and there was John. Uh, Peter, well, throughout this gospel, we are going to see that Peter is distinct from the author who is writing. They're going to actually talk with each other. So it can't be Peter, and also Peter most likely was dead at the time this gospel was written. It also couldn't be James, the brother of John, because James was the first apostle murdered, and that was actually recorded in the book of Acts. So we know it couldn't be Peter or James, and so if this little reference here is referencing the transfiguration, Uh, that would suggest that this is the author, the Apostle John, writing this, and it leaves no other options. I don't know if that's necessarily what it's referencing here, but if so, it's really cool evidence for the authorship of the Gospel of John. But even without that, we have very good reason to believe this is the Apostle John writing. I just wanted to address it to make it useful for you all. So he says, we have seen his glory, and he describes this glory, right? It is the glory as the only son from the Father. Some translations will translate this phrase only as only begotten, or some will translate it as the one and only. Uh, And so there's a lot of debate over what that word means. It's the Greek monogenes. Uh, That's what the Greek word is, and there's a lot of different debate, like mono, like one and then gene, would someone say, is begotten or unique? Uh, it just depends on how you translate that. Um, and really, there we could get into the debate. I don't really feel like getting into that today. You can do the research yourself. Universally, though, there's a common interpretation that people are trying to arrive at through how they translate it, because the uni- like the universal testimony of what is being asserted here is that Jesus is the unique Son of the Father, right? Some would say eternally begotten, but the whole point is that he was not created. Some people might heretically hear the word only begotten, and they might think that Jesus was begotten in the sense that he was created at some point but that would actually contradict what we've already read so far in the gospel of John just a few verses earlier right through him all things were created without him nothing was made that has been made Uh, so it wouldn't really make sense for him to thus only a few verses later being saying that Jesus was created because that would not make sense right that would actually be assuming that this author was really really dumb and that just a few verses after having written something very profound, he forgot that he wrote that and totally changed his opinion. So we should give John the benefit of the doubt. He's obviously not suggesting that Jesus was made. What his point is, is that Jesus was the unique Son of the Father. Because he just told us that those who received him have the right to become children of God. And so what he wants to clarify is that Jesus is the Son of God in a unique way that's different from the way that we are children Of God. The point is that Jesus is the unique Son that came from the Father to be distinguished from those who are called children of God, in verse 13. He was not created, all things were created through him. He was unique in his sonhood, set apart from all the others. He came to earth to manifest the Father's presence. Uh, And to clarify this, we actually have this thing called the Nicene Creed, which, if you're hearing this, you might actually be familiar with it. You might um, actually have it memorized. I don't know. Uh, or uh, once you hear it, it might actually ring a bell in your head. But back in A.D. 325 at the Council of Nicaea, this is how they summarized what we believe about Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never and So right there in the Nicene Creed, especially at the beginning, they specify that Jesus was begotten, not made. So how we would phrase this is that he was eternally begotten. It's, it's speaking towards his relationship with the Father, not his creation, because Jesus was not created. As we've seen, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Those first three verses, John is clarifying over and over again, the Word was not created. So when he says that he is the only begotten of the Father, it's speaking of his relationship, right? He is the only begotten Son. Not that he was created. He's unique as the Son of God, distinct from the way that we are children of God. We are made into children of God in a very different manner through belief in him. He has eternally been the Son of God. But then John goes on, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on to describe what this glory was like. The glory was full of grace and truth. The glory that the Word displayed during His time on earth was a glory that was full of grace and a glory that was full of truth. These are terms that are heavenly, that are heavily associated with salvation. Right? Salvation, eternal life. It's entirely a result of the grace of God reaching down to us. And it's entirely rooted in us placing our saving faith in the truth he has revealed. Right? So whenever Jesus came and revealed his glory to us, it was a glory of grace and truth. He made salvation known to us by standing before us when God became flesh, he made salvation possible. That's what John is asserting here. But all that John says here becomes all the more significant when we see the Old Testament parallels that he's alluding to. Earlier, I already referenced how whenever it says that he dwelt among us, that was supposed to draw a parallel to the idea of the tabernacle in the wilderness right, the idea of God dwelling amongst his people. But I also want you to notice this, because it goes beyond just that. It actually talks about seeing God. And so I want to take us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, and I want us to see some parallels between Exodus chapters 33 and 34, and this one verse in John chapter 1. In Exodus 33, verse 7, this is what we read. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Right? So it said that Moses pitched the tent, and that's where he would meet with God. And if people wanted to meet with God, they'd go there. Well, right here it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, which could be translated as tabernacled or pitched his tent among us, right? So before, Moses was the one pitching the tent to go meet with God, and people had to go there. Here, we have God pitching his tent with us and coming to us to meet with us. So before, man is having to come to God. Now God is coming to us. And then if you go a few verses later in Exodus, in verse 18, starting there, we read this. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So in this story, we have Moses asking God, he says, God, I want to see your glory, I want to see you, and God responds, Nobody can see me. I am too glorious. He says, Moses, I will put you on a rock and I will pass by you, but all you will see is my back because you cannot handle seeing me face to face because man is too sinful. I will be gracious to who I will be gracious, but there are some things man cannot handle because they are too corrupted by their sin. And so he says, I will pass by you and you will see my back. But right here, we have John telling us that we have seen his glory. When Jesus came down to earth, he did something that was impossible. And then, if you go on into Exodus 34, we actually have the account where God does this with Moses, and this is what we read, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God passes in front of Moses and he says, behold, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, and I have steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that for thousands, keeping it for all of you. And whenever we get to John, we read this, Glory as of the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reason those are parallel are very significant. Whenever God says that he is abounding in steadfast love, that is the Hebrew word Chesed. And whenever he says that he's abounding in faithfulness, that's the Hebrew word emet. And whenever you translate the Hebrew word chesed, that means steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, covenant love. It's translated in different ways, in different translations. But it is probably close, one of the most closely parallel words to the New Testament word karis, which is grace right it's the idea of god giving his unmerited favor and love to his covenant people and then the hebrew word emeth the word that he uses for faithfulness that can also be translated as truth because that's what faithfulness is it's truth and so what god says here he says he passes in front of moses and he says i am a god of steadfast love And faithfulness. I am a God of grace and truth. And then what John says, he says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The assertion of John is that the glory that Moses saw on Mount Sinai is the very same glory that he and his friends witnessed when the Word became flesh. He says, You know that God that Moses wrote about? That God that Moses saw, that's the God that we saw. That's the glory that we beheld. That is what John is asserting here. Don't miss that. It is a big, big, big deal. This is the God who spoke, let there be light. And he saw that that light was good. This is the God who breathed life into man. And he saw that that man was very good. This is the God who wrote the law. This is the God who sent the prophets. This God is the one who's coming in the flesh. And John is saying, we saw him with our eyes. We saw him with our eyes. We beheld his glory. Glory as the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John has just said sets us up perfectly for verse 16. But you'll notice we're just in verse 14. What John's going to do, being that John is the master storyteller that he is, John is going to remind us of where the story is about to head, and so he parenthetically mentions John the Baptist once again. Verse 14 is going to continue to flow into verse 16. But whenever we finish the prologue in just a few verses, we're going to pick back up with John the Baptist. And so John the author is very careful here, and he wants us to remember where we're about to head, so he's going to say, let's mention John the Baptist again real quick. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Interestingly enough, we see a curious aspect here about John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. The majority of his ministry was spent pointing people towards Jesus even before he fully comprehended who Jesus was. Notice what he says there. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Right? So John spent the majority of his ministry saying, There's this guy coming, and he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Right? So John spends the majority of his ministry saying this. He was looking ahead to something that hadn't yet been realized, and it was only whenever Jesus showed up that John could add the phrase in front of it that says, this was he of whom I said, right? So John was looking forward constantly, and then once Jesus shows up on the scene, John ends up taking the back seat, and his ministry begins to dwindle because he is passing the torch to Jesus. The majority of the time, John told people, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It was only after Jesus arrived that John could say, this was he of whom I said. John's ministry was rooted in a hope of something that was to come. In the same way, that is what our ministry is. It's rooted in faith faith that there is something coming that we do not see yet, but we can preach to people with confidence. We can tell them, there is one who is coming after me, who surpasses me because he was before me. We preach that same thing to people, and there will be one day when we will see him coming in the clouds, and we will say, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. But that raises the question, what does John mean by this? What does he mean whenever he says, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me? And we're actually going to tackle this question more in depth in a future lesson because this is going to come up again later on. But it still briefs. Uh, it still merits a brief information. Oh my gosh. It still merits a brief introduction here. I can't talk today. It still merits a brief introduction here and so We're going to introduce it here, and then we'll attack it um, more in depth later on. What does he mean by, he who comes after me has surpassed me, or ranks above me because he was before me? Interestingly, this is actually our first example of what some scholars have called an undesigned coincidence in the Gospels, which actually, for me, is one of my favorite arguments for the consistency and inerrancy of the Gospels. Uh, And what I mean by this, what I mean is this. Lydia McGrew, uh, who's a scholar, she defines an undesigned coincidence as this. An undesigned coincidence is a notable connection between two or more accounts or texts that doesn't seem to have been planned by the person or people giving the accounts. Despite their apparent independence, the items fit together like pieces of a puzzle. So what they mean is this. Sometimes whenever you're reading the Gospels, you'll encounter a detail in John and a detail in Matthew that typically people will totally overlook, but really they inform you whenever you read them together, they actually tell you more about the account that gives you more information. Or it might even be something that whenever you read Matthew's account, you might just take that fact for granted when you're reading John, and so you read the information into John that you already learned from Matthew without even recognizing that it was never mentioned in John. And so it actually proves that both accounts are independently written of each other because the, the information in Matthew isn't found in John and the information in John isn't found in Matthew, yet they both support each other in a way that supports the validity of the claim. And I don't know if I explained that as well as I probably could have, uh, Lydia McGrew does a very good job of explaining it in her book, Hidden in Plain View, which is quickly becoming one of my favorite books. It's, it's so great, it's like, seeing the arguments for the Gospels there. Uh, but the idea is that sometimes you encounter these coincidences in the Gospels. They're not really coincidences. I would say they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there's these coincidences in the Gospels that actually help you understand the Gospels more, and such is the case with this one event right here. Right? And we're going to see this many times in the Gospel of John. Many times we're going to see little coincidences wherein the Gospel of John either explains or is explained by the synoptic Gospels. Sometimes we'll encounter a detail in John which explains Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But sometimes we'll actually need to reference something in Matthew, Mark, or Luke that'll explain John. And so it proves that they're independent sources because if John was just wanting to copy off of them, he would have put their details in there. And if they were trying to copy off John or something, they would have put his details in there. But they're actually independent sources that help each other out. Really cool argument. I would look into it if I were you. It's actually very, very fascinating to see how various texts in Scripture do this. They all coincide with each other and help confirm one another. But in this particular text, this is what we see. From the Gospel of Luke, we learn that John the Baptist and Jesus are related and that John the Baptist is actually six months older than Jesus. We don't learn that information in John. John never mentions that John the Baptist and Jesus are related. He never mentions the age of John the Baptist or Jesus. We learn that information in Luke. So, in the Gospel of John, whenever we read that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, If we don't know about their ages, we might read it like this. He who comes after me ranks before me because he is older than me. That would make sense, right? So John would be saying, the guy who's coming after me in a little bit in ministry, he ranks above me because he's actually older than me. And that would actually coincide with the Jewish concept of older people ranking above people. But whenever you read the Gospel of Luke, we actually learned that that can't be what John the Baptist means because John the Baptist is older than Jesus. So he can't be claiming here that Jesus is older than him. He has to be claiming something else. That is, even though Jesus as a human being is younger than John the Baptist, Jesus as God is above John the Baptist, right? What he's doing here is he's saying, he who comes after me in ministry ranks above me or before me because he was before me. Yes, he might be younger than me as a human, but he existed long before I existed. Remember how we read that the word was coming into the world and there was a man sent from God whose name was John, right? So John was sent into the world and he arrived as a regular human does. He came into existence. Jesus had already existed. He was merely coming into the world. He arrived on the scene. John showed up in existence. Jesus arrived on the scene. That's the significance here. And we don't necessarily know that John understood the full implications of what he was saying here. It seems like, by and large, no one entirely grasped the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh until after his resurrection. Even his disciples didn't fully seem to grasp that implication It wasn't until after the resurrection that Thomas falls on his knees and says, my Lord and my God. It doesn't seem like they understood that Jesus was God in the flesh until after he came back to life. Um, So, as is common in the Gospels, John could simply be saying something that is even truer than he realizes. Actually, according to the Babylonian Talmud, which is a Jewish text, um, there were actually seven things that the Jews believed preceded even creation. And this is what it says. Seven phenomena were created before the world was created. And they are the Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the temple, and the name of the Messiah. That's from um, Pesachim 54a, right? So right there at the very end, the seventh thing that was created before creation, according to Jewish thought, was the name of the Messiah. So it could be that John the Baptist is just saying that Jesus came before him because he's the Messiah, right? The Messiah was already established. They already knew the name of the Messiah since before then. But as is common in the Gospels, sometimes people will say things that are truer than they realize. Um, So either way, we know what John means by this. John is hearing what John the Baptist said, and he's saying, oh, that is good stuff. That is significant. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Yes, he is younger than me by age, but he is older than me because he has existed since the beginning of time. From the author's perspective, the implications are clear. But like I said, we're going to dive deeper into that in another lesson. For right now, let's move on. Our focus is on the Word who is introducing himself to us. So let's talk back about the Word whose glory we have seen, the glory full of grace and truth. Verse 16 says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. So, whenever Jesus arrives on the scene, John says that from his fullness, from everything that he was, from everything that he became, from God becoming flesh, we all, all of us, every single person, we have all received grace upon grace. And this gives rise to another debate. You'll notice there's always debate when it comes to Scripture. People are like, how do we interpret this verse? And I want to give you all those various different interpretations and give you my opinions to help you formulate your own decision. So the the question at hand here is the term grace upon grace. In Greek, that's karin anti karitas. Right? And people are debating, what does that mean? What does it mean to say grace upon grace? How should that even be translated? And most of the debate revolves around the word anti- right? It's the preposition ante in Greek, and people are saying, should that be translated as upon? Should it be translated as instead of? Should it be translated as in place of, in addition to? There's some flexibility there because depending on the context, that preposition can mean different things. So I just want to give you the four main perspectives that people place there whenever they're saying, whenever Jesus showed up on the scene and we received grace, ante grace, what's being said here? And the first thing that people would say, some people argue that it's grace by correlation. And what they mean by by that is this. Some would view that this is saying that we receive a similar grace that corresponds to the grace of the word, the grace of Christ. Right? So they would say that John is saying, from his fullness, we have received a grace corresponding to the grace of Jesus. Right? So we as Christians receive grace in a similar way to the graciousness of Jesus Christ. And in a way, I guess that is theologically true, in context, doesn't seem to make much sense. The second one is grace by acquisition. Right? Some others, they would view that this is saying that one grace is given in return for another, kind of like a second grace that's a result of some sort of payment or transaction. Right? So they're saying that jesus whenever he came and he came in the flesh he gave us from his fullness a grace in return for grace right so whenever jesus came he gave us this grace in response to some grace that he received from us right that also is kind of weird um primarily because it doesn't fit the context kind of like the first one but it also seems to contradict the very concept of grace in the bible Because grace is unmerited favor. That's like the simplest definition of grace. It's unmerited favor. It's something that you don't earn. It's not a transaction that we partake in. Right? So that would seem to actually almost contradict what John is saying here. um, Because the Bible doesn't define grace in that way. But then a third way that people might define it is grace by accumulation. Right? So this would be like what the ESV is kind of um, like what we're reading from, we're reading from the English Standard Version. This is how the ESV would probably interpret it because this views it as grace upon grace, right? It's grace in addition to grace. So whenever Jesus shows up on the scene, he is giving us a grace that is in addition to grace that was given prior, right? So it's like grace upon grace upon grace. You're just adding unmerited favor upon unmerited favor, unmerited favor. It's just God heaping piles and piles of grace upon us through Jesus' arrival. That's what the ESV would translate that as. And then, uh, just a quick note about that, that's the majority opinion. Most people would agree with that one. But then the fourth opinion would be grace by substitution. And this would view it as grace instead of other grace, right? So it's like a replacement. Whenever Jesus came, he came and he replaced one grace with another Right? So God had given unmerited favor in one way before. Now Jesus shows up, and he replaces that grace with another one. It'd be instead of, right? So we have grace by by correlation, grace by acquisition, grace by accumulation, grace by substitution. There's those four different perspectives, and really, I would probably say that it's a mixture of the last two. And that's why I would actually prefer the NIV's translation of this, I like the ESV. The ESV is my favorite translation. But I would actually prefer the NIV, the New International Version's translation of this particular text, because what they say is this. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So in their translation, they actually kind of combine both the third and the fourth perspectives together. So not only are we receiving grace in addition to the grace already received, but it's also a replacement grace. Right? And why I think that probably fits the best is because of the context in which we found this stated. John just stated, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace already given. And then see what he says in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth was given through Jesus Christ. So in the context, it seems like what John is saying, okay, so there was already this grace given through the law that was given through Moses... But now, in addition to that grace, we're receiving grace through Jesus Christ. And so that would make sense with the ESV translation. Grace upon grace. But it also seems to be that it's replacement, right? He's taking one grace, which is a lesser grace, the law given through Moses, and he's replacing it with something greater. The grace that came through Jesus Christ. So it seems like it's a mixture of both. It's an in addition to, but it's also a replacement. It's something greater. He's putting something better in place of the old. So the NIV translation seems to make the most sense. Grace in place of grace already given. Some will argue, however, that um, grace was not given through Moses, right? They would say, well, the law was not grace. Uh, and they'll cite texts like Romans chapter 6, verse 14, uh, that says, you know, you are not under the law but under grace. They'll cite texts like that to say that grace and the law do not go together, But I would respond to that by saying that the contexts are very different there. Um, Context is key in understanding anything uh, in the Bible or anything outside of the Bible. Like, anywhere you look, context is key in interpreting a situation or a text or a person, whatever. Context is important. And so grace and law are not always opposed. What Paul means by that is very different than what I think John means here. If we're taking grace... To mean unmerited favor the unmerited loving kindness of god right the hesed we talked about earlier well then yeah the law that was given through moses was definitely an act of grace because through the law god was revealing himself to his people and we did not deserve that we don't deserve to know god at all so there was this grace that was given through moses but the thing is that grace could not draw people to God in the same way that Jesus Christ could, right? All the law could do was show you how sinful you were. Jesus Christ comes on the scene, and he can actually save you from your sin. And that is what John's point is here. And I also want you to not miss a certain detail. John is asserting that Jesus is greater than Moses. Right here, that's what his assertion is. His assertion is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, this man, is greater than Moses. And so if he is asserting that, then his assertions have to be true. Because in a Jewish perspective, you don't diss Moses. Moses is the guy whose name was synonymous with the law. A lot of the times in the Gospels, you will hear people say, well, according to Moses, yada, 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 and they're quoting the law. People viewed Moses and law as like synonymous things. Moses was the great man of God. Yet right here, John is asserting that Jesus is greater than Moses. And this is going to be a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of John. He's going to take these Jewish constructs and say that Jesus is better. Jesus is always one-upping these things. And that's John's point through all of this. Not only did Jesus give a grace in addition to grace... But it is a grace that is greater than the grace that was already given. It is a grace that is in place of grace already given. The law could merely point to God. Jesus Christ was and is God. The law had the power to save no one, but merely to convict us of sin. Jesus Christ has the power to save everyone and the ability to free them from the bondages of sin. Moses merely got to perceive the grace and truth, whereas Jesus Christ embodied the grace and truth. Moses could merely speak of how he saw the back of God. Jesus Christ helps us see God. Moses' greatest contribution was the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and his greatest contribution is God himself. Like Moses, the law could merely point you to the promised land, but he could not get in, nor can the law draw you into salvation. Like Joshua, Jesus Christ can lead you into the promised land, and he can lead you into salvation. And a fun fact real quick, the name Jesus actually comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, so there's a lot of significance there. My point is this, the grace that came in Jesus Christ was in addition to the grace given by the law, but it also surpassed and replaced that previous grace, grace in place of grace already given. And another detail I want you to realize, and I don't think it should lose its significance, and I want you to realize its significance is this. It is in this verse right here that John introduces us by name to Jesus Christ. Prior to this moment, Jesus was always reduced to the abstract principles that John had referenced to him as thus far. He called him the word. He called him the life. He called him the light. But right now, at this moment, the word, the life, the light, he has given a name because now he is coming in the flesh, Prior to this moment, Jesus was unnamed because prior to coming in the flesh, he was not named Jesus. He was the Son. He was the Word. He was the life. He was the light. He was the one who eternally dwelt with the Father in the closest of intimacy. But his name was not yet Jesus. Jesus was the name given to him when he was born to a virgin in a cave in the little town of Bethlehem. And so right now, at this moment, the word is coming in the flesh to dwell among us. And at that moment, the eternally begotten Son became Jesus Christ. He became Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the anointed one who has come to save the world. And in him, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was the single most miraculous event in history. Don't miss that. God is coming in the flesh. The eternally begotten Son of God has taken flesh upon himself so that he is no longer just the word, no longer just the light, no longer just the life. Now he is Jesus Christ. And it is the greatest act of revelation that God has ever undertaken God has revealed himself through the law, through the writings, through the prophets, but now Jesus Christ is revealing God by coming in the flesh, and that is why Paul can write in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and paul writes this again in philippians Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And thus John can conclude the prologue with this statement. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known you see even Moses saw God but he didn't truly see God even when Moses got to see God he did not get to see God in the same way he got to see the back of God he got to see the glory of God but he did not see the Lord In fact, the reason Moses only got to see God's back is precisely because no one can see God. This is the universal testimony of Scripture. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, no one could see God prior to Jesus because God is spirit. You can't see spirit. But secondly, and more importantly, the reason no one could see God is because man is too sinful to behold the glory of God. That's why in Exodus 33, when God was talking to Moses, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. He says, how can man see me and live? He's too sinful And if you read Psalm 97, this is what it says. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. It's saying righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne and therefore darkness has to surround him because man cannot perceive that. They need something to cover up God because man cannot behold the glory of God and yet live. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this amazing account. This is whenever God is commissioning Isaiah to go out and be a prophet. And this is what we read. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Some would translate that, the hymn of his robe. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Isaiah, he only sees the train of God's robe, the hem of God's robe, and he is left trembling because he says, I am too unclean. I don't deserve to be here. Woe is me. I'm about to die because no man can see God. He is too holy, too glorious, too powerful, too amazing, too righteous, too pure, and we are too sinful. Indeed, no one has ever seen God. But the uniquely begotten, eternally begotten Son of God who is himself God and who is at the Father's side has made him known. Notice the callback here that we get back to chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word was with God. In this verse, we read that the Son is at the Father's side. Back then, we read that in the beginning, the Word was God. Here we read that the Son himself is God. The phrase at the Father's side can be translated as in the bosom of the Father, a phrase that suggests intimacy, closeness, love, and complete understanding. Right now, even as I speak to you, the Son resides at the bosom of the Father at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalves and dwelling in perfect intimacy that he has shared with God since before the beginning of creation. It is because of his closeness to the Father that the Son can make the Father known. And thus, throughout the Gospel of John, we have Jesus saying things like this. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he's claiming that he has been with God he's seen the Father, therefore he can make God known. And then he also says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is claiming that if you see Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you see the Word, you have seen God. If you have seen the Son of God, you have seen God himself. That's the claim of Jesus. In the other Gospels, in the book of Matthew, you hear this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know God, you have to know me first, because Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, but the Word became flesh. That is the claim of Scripture. And so no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And the word for known here is the Greek word exegesato, which is where we get the word exegesis, which is the fancy term for the proper method of interpreting Scripture. And the reason I say that is because just like exegesis is the proper word for interpreting Scripture, so Jesus is the only proper way for interpreting God. Jesus is the exegesis of God. And you cannot understand God until you first know Jesus. And so, with that, John brings his prologue to a close, having set us up for the most epic tale of all times, for the climax of human history. And to recap, this is what we have learned in the past 18 verses. Firstly, Jesus is the eternal, uncreated, self-existent Word who is both distinct from God, yet the same as God. Secondly, this eternal Word was the agent of all creation through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that has been made. Thirdly, this eternal word was the agent of all salvation so that those who receive him are granted the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Fourthly, this eternal word was the agent of all revelation through whom all men are granted light, be that through the illumination of nature, The proclamation of all peoples, the obligation of one source, or the incarnation through whom all are forced to make a decision. Fifthly, this eternal word is the one who reveals God and who makes God known. And then sixthly, and lastly, this eternal word is the one who signs and seals the covenants of God, the one who has taken upon flesh to go about the life that will lead to a new covenant that surpasses all the rest. And with that, the prologue of John comes to a close. He has established for us everything we need to know going into his gospel. He has laid all the groundwork. He has introduced the main characters. And now, going forward, we can actually in- introduce, walk into, we can go into the narrative of the gospel of John. John. And we will get to see God become flesh. I hope you are as excited for it as I am. Starting next week, we will go into the narrative of this gospel. And we will start out with a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us whenever you didn't have to. And thank you for your word that came into the world. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, who came to reveal your glory, a glory full of grace and truth. I pray that for those listening, they will come to know you. I pray that those who do know you, they will come to know you more. And I pray even for myself, God, that through this, I will come to know you more and that I will come to proclaim you more and that I will come to live for you more. And I pray, God, that all of us, no matter where we're at in our relationship with you, will learn to seek you more, and will come to recognize how worthy you truly are of all our worship, and that we will come to bow down before your throne, and kiss at your feet, and lay all our poverty at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We thank you so much for all you have done, you are doing, and you will do. And it is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.